0: From Interfaith Alliance, this is the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in Washington, DC. In the days since the brutal violence in Israel and Gaza, communities across this country and around the world have been drawn into conflict, grief, and uncertainty. Even before the violence started, religious-motivated hate crimes in America had spiked, reaching their highest levels since 2001. What has happened in the Middle East has contributed to a dramatic rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia here at home, proliferating on virtual platforms and in communities across the country, including attacks on an Islamic seminary in Boston, Massachusetts, a synagogue in Fresno, California, and increased incidences of bullying and harassment of Muslim and Jewish students. And this week, a six-year-old boy was stabbed in a hate crime for being Palestinian and Muslim, and he died. I am personally heartbroken, angry, and searching for a way forward. Approaching this on our show is both challenging and necessary. This week, I'll be checking in with three leaders for whom I have tremendous respect. You'll hear from Celine Ibrahim, Jay Michelson, and Fred Davy. Almost certainly, you will hear things that you agree with and things that disturb you. And I encourage you to let that be okay. This will not be a debate, but rather I am doing what Interfaith Alliance is encouraging us all to do to check in, to listen, to learn, and find ways to be with one another and insist that we will never sanction hate and that we will attempt to forge alliances across differences wherever, whenever, however possible. And now to my first guest. Rabbi Dr. J. Michelson is a commentator on CNN and a columnist for Rolling Stone. Jay is a meditation teacher and the author of 10 books, including The Gate of Tears, Sadness, and The Spiritual Path. And is affiliated professor at Chicago Theological Seminary. Jay holds a PhD in Jewish thought from Hebrew University, a JD from Yale Law School, and a non-denominational rabbinic ordination. Jay, thank you for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, I just want to start with a very open question um, that you can take wherever you want to take it, which is how are you feeling today?
1: Today is better than yesterday, uh, but the day is young. You know, I think um, many folks, American Jews, Palestinians, people from all backgrounds are in a real grief process right now. And you know, we've we you and I have worked with grief in our in our lives over the years and it, it comes and goes. I think um the initial shock of the news of the massacres in Israel, once the details became known, the kidnappings, the mass graves at a music festival, uh the killing of elderly women and children and babies, uh was incredibly devastating. and for progressives and people have been working for peace in Israel- Palestine for decades, it was doubly painful uh, because we knew what was going to come after, which is now has now transpired or begun to transpire. So we knew uh, even as we were in our raw pain and grief, that there was more pain ahead. Uh, and and sure enough, of course that's that's unfolded. And so it was complicated you know this is my family I, I only knew one person who was murdered in the attacks and and not very well but I have many friends uh, who were you know huddling in in shelters uh, or who had friends, close friends and close family members, parents children uh, who were murdered and um, you know that's my first emotional, Reaction. And that's, that's, that those, it it really could have been me. I I went to a music festival at that same location uh, many years ago. And, um, you know, that pain was there mixed with the concern and dread of what was to come. And then came a third wave of pain, which was, and I'll speak frankly here, what I feel was the total betrayal. Of uh, Jews and the, deval- the anti-Semitic devaluing of Jewish lives from su- some segments of the left, including the religious left, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. I've received a lot of uh, personal statements of support, but more importantly, you know, organizations and people who have been fighting for for peace and justice in Palestine have many have been very supportive, while recognizing, of course, uh, that there was a next level of violence to come, which is now unfolded. However, Many voices did not, and I cannot underestimate and understate the rage that I feel, the betrayal, and the hurt uh, for uh, for people in my own community, friends of mine, uh, colleagues, people who I've worked with in the LGBTQ movement, in the religious left, uh, for not even pausing while the blood was still running from the blood from the bodies of the victims to justify, quote unquote, contextualize, or in some way even cheer and support uh, these brutal attacks, I cannot think of any other example uh, of a group of people, when a group of people is massacred in heinous, horrifying, shocking ways that there is a quick rush to either explain or justify or contextualize that. And there are a lot of reasons for that that might exist. And we can go into that if you want. Uh, But ultimately, it's been a real rude awakening, as to how little Jewish lives matter to people who claim to speak for human rights of all kinds. And I want to hasten to add this is not to minimize the deaths on the Palestinian side and the suffering of the Palestinian people. This is not to minimize the suffering of occupation uh, for decades. Uh, And it's not to of course in any way justify the horrible violence that has happened including against innocent palestinians even in the united states and people perceived to be who are muslim or perceived to be muslim in the united states Um, but your question was how i feel and i and pretty much every other jewish liberal that i know uh closely is in a tremendous amount of pain confusion and feeling betrayed
0: yeah I, I think it's really important to be able to state that. Um, I have seen that, and I have appreciated um, you your presence in the, the various media formats that you show up in, um, and how important it is to, to say that so that people can hear it uh, and be aware. Uh, so I, I think it's really important, especially for those of us who are committed to an interfaith future, a future where all people of all faiths and all religions are valued and respected, um, to be able to articulate the betrayal that you feel, I think is really important. And hopefully people will be able to hear that and understand it. Uh, you said it, I think very, very clearly. And I guess the, you know, the next question is like, how have you been processing this for yourself personally? I mean, one of the things I I do want to Um, highlight today is your new substack, which sounds like, hey, look, he's got a new substack. But I think part of the reason it happened now is that you had something really important to say, and you are saying it. And another reason I think it's happening is that you are helping, you are putting yourself out there and relying on all of your um, spiritual training, your religious knowledge, um, your understanding of society to offer some help to people who are also trying to process this. So can you talk a little bit about the writing you've been doing and how that process has been for you? Sure.
1: Yeah. It's, um, one of those unexpected coincidences, if we believe in that, uh, that, you know, I did launch this newsletter about a month ago. Um, and it's in a way very similar to what state of belief has done all these years, you know, bringing together, an understanding of religious religion, religious consciousness, spiritual consciousness, with progressive politics, and uh, it's called both and because of that, it's it's both the spiritual and the political. So it's familiar territory. Uh, it was never intended, obviously, that you know that this would this launch would then coincide with this period. Uh, but for me, you know, I think you know, dating back to you know way back when when you and I first met, when I was doing LGBTQ activist work as, as my career you know, it's clear that there are personal and spiritual and religious sides to these political events, debates and controversies. And there are a lot of folks who are hurting right now. And I'm speaking from my position, you know, I'm a rabbi, I want to be sure and again, I'm just going to keep reemphasizing it, I, I don't want to minimize or marginalize or decenter uh the pain that Palestinians are experiencing now, and, and that their families and friends and anyone who who is concerned about them is feeling right now, but in my position, uh, from speaking as a rabbi, I've dealt really not that well with it. It's been a really rough ten days. Um, it's just this milestone of emotions, and it's very familiar uh, from grief processes. You know, when each of my parents died, you know, you think you're okay, and then you're not, and you just get hit by a you know a metaphorical truck uh, when you when you least expect it. So I've you know I'm fortunate to have this new platform where one of the advantages of of a substack type newsletter is you can really just speak from the heart uh, to readers who want to hear that you know what you have to say and and you know whether they support it financially or just subscribe or whatever is is almost secondary you know that it's forming a kind of a community and so you know for me I the first thing I wrote it was before a lot of the mainstream you know now there's you know Michelle Goldberg has written beautifully on this a lot of mainstream Uh, writers have have talked about this um, pain that American Jews are feeling and the shock that so few people reached out to check in and see how we were doing. You know, this is an unprecedented event. I'm just speaking again from the Israeli side for a moment that it's never this the scale of this catastrophe and the gruesomeness of this catastrophe literally Mm -hmm. has not happened to Jews since the Holocaust. And this triggers deep wounds, uh, deep uh, trauma, intergenerational trauma, Mm -hmm. That many people carry around you know people bursting into their houses and killing their grandparents in front of them and then posting the videos on social media, which is a a very contemporary version of that old trauma. And people are really hurting so i've tried to draw on you know my work in the meditation and mindfulness fields for techniques tools ways to just sort of build a little bit of resilience and you know there's a real second risk. In, in this kind of pain, which is that we harden our hearts, just like Pharaoh in Egypt. And we harden our hearts to the suffering on the other people on the side of this, on the other, the other side of this border. And you know, without even commenting about what policy is militarily the right one and things like that, no matter what we believe in terms of politics, I don't want to harden my heart against the suffering, to the suffering of others. I feel terrible when I do that, and of course there are folks on the Jewish side who are doing that and you know they're coming from pain i'm not really here to judge that. But for myself, I I want you know my for my whole 30 years of doing this spiritual teaching thing my Dharma has been about being truthful with our emotions and allowing space for them to unfold and and when that's grief and pain that's what I want to feel but. You know, that hasn't been good for my health or my sleep or my, you know, more my work, but it's just the way that I live.
0: Yeah, I, I really appreciated that. And I, I, I'm I thinking particularly of one one of your Substack um, articles, which really was, um, I'll say as a preacher, like I'm often preaching to myself uh, when I'm sure. preaching to yeah. others. Yeah. And, I, and it felt like you were teaching to yourself as you were offering those um, mm-hmm. same tools to others. So I wonder if you'd be willing to... Um, Walk through briefly some of the principles that you laid out in a, in a substack um, several days ago. That um, that just felt really, really applicable to anyone um, in this moment uh, and others, you know, experiencing other tragedies. But felt very directed in this moment.
1: Yeah, I think, thanks for, for seeing that. That's definitely true. Um, you know, this was me <laughs> writing for myself a little bit and trying to practice what I preach um, and failing sometimes. You know, a lot of what I put in that particular post, which was entitled What Can Help, was actually drawn on uh, my experience from COVID, where I was working for a meditation app and podcast called 10% Happier, and people were in acute pain at that time, and we really were trying to be of service. And so part of it is just recognizing that this pain and, and anxiety and fear, all of these things happen to the body. These are somatic, you know, and it might not even be helpful to try to chase down the articulate reasons. I'm a professional articulator, so my mind wants to, you know, disaggregate and figure things out, but that may not be helpful uh, in this kind of pain. And so it, 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 the, the positive side of that is that we can attend to the body in ways that we can't really attend to the mind or the heart. I am not coming to this moment with a set of policy prescriptions that will solve this problem. And uh, I don't know. You know, I really don't. And I'm, I feel just terrible about about what the near-term future holds, certainly for Gaza, uh, but also for the region. And um, you know, so it might not be possible to address the mental, phys- the mental intellectual pieces of what we're thinking and feeling. But I can try to do some self-care of the body. I can try to make sure to, I'm not actually practicing this very well, but you know, eating and sleeping well. And that's you know that's one tool. And secondly, just some mindfulness is an aid in cutting down on putting in inputs that make things worse. Um, on Sunday, all I did was doom scroll. And I did it kind of consciously, honestly. This is a week ago. This was Sunday the uh, 8th. You know, so the, the attacks happened on the Saturday, but I didn't at least didn't get all the news until sort of Sunday morning. Ironically, I was I was uh, officiating a wedding Saturday night. So it's good that I didn't have all of the details. I had the news, but not the details of it. And I just felt like I, you know, I wanted to go down into the abyss, and that's what I did. Um for a few hours. You know, Judaism has a wonderful this wonderful practice of Shiva, which is a seven-day period after somebody dies who we're close to. And you don't try to make it better. You just allow the process, to allow that grief to unfold. At a certain point, it becomes skillful to You know, shift a little bit. And so I notice now when there's a desire to kind of rummage more in the painful, horrible news, I can just feel that, you know, with a little bit of attention and mindfulness and really hopefully sometimes gently not do that, regulating our news intake. You know, I don't think anyone listening to this is in danger of being too uh, detached from the news. (laughs) Probably our listeners are people who are very personally involved uh, in one way or another. And so, you know, there's that old saw that religion and journalism, uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Um, right now, I think comforting the afflicted might mean just stepping back a little bit from the, from the gory news, um, and tending to ourselves and our communities and to those who are hurting and, and more vulnerable than we are.
0: Mm. I, I don't need to tell you that there is a rise of, um, you know, anti-Semitism in this country, as well as Islamophobia. And this, uh, conflict in the Middle East is definitely exacerbating that, um, with terrible outcomes. And I'm just wondering, um, what, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I know you just gave that great, uh, thing about not going for solutions, but I, I am wondering, have you seen anything that you're like, oh, that, thank you. And that is a relief and it gives me an, a, a glimmer of hope going forward. Have you seen any incidents like that? Anybody saying things that gives you hope or um, what ways forward are, are you imagining uh, even as you stay in this place of honesty with your, with your heart?
1: Well, I'll briefly say something about Israel, uh, which is that the, the Israeli public um is is really furious at the right wing govern, government that allowed this to happen through their negligence, um, and there is a bit of a I don't know I don't even want to say silver lining, but I think it is true that there is a real sense of um, failure uh, from this government, which before this happened, you know, I like many others was supportive of you know widespread protests against this right wing government. So right now, of course, there's a unity government in Israel. It's a war government, but that's not going to last forever. That's this that's for this moment. And I think there is a possibility of um, change uh, that if, you know, this government does not speak for, you know, the large center of the Israeli public, uh, the, the previous, you know, the government before the unity government. And, you know, there might be some hope for change on that side, which might lead to policies that might someday lead to an end to uh, occupation and more justice. Um, You know, maybe the irony, I think, is that some of the most moving developments outside of Israel really bring Jews and Muslims in particular together because we're both being targeted, you know, so I, I, you know, there's not much one can do after that horrible, like the hate crime in Chicago against a six year old boy, you know, I signed a I signed a petition as a rabbi, you know, and I've seen a lot of widespread outpouring of support. There is additional violence happening in Europe right now targeting Jews targeting Muslims, you know, one, I'm not naive, uh, but there might be some solidarity simply in these two groups being targeted, Um, and nobody's you know, one thing that was a, another tragic irony of the initial attacks, you know, nobody asked anybody's political views before they were, you know, they they killed them. You know, those people at that music festival, 200 some odd people, those tend to be left-wing folks, right? Who go to those kinds of festivals, not entirely, but, you know. And the person who I knew who was killed was a very dedicated uh, peace activist, you know, really putting his time and his, his whole life uh, behind those, those, those beliefs. And likewise, outside of Israel, there's not, nobody's checking to see what my political views might be before I might get targeted, or same thing if, if somebody's uh, perceived Muslim or perceived to be Muslim. And um, where there's hope for me is in is in maybe that shared experience of vulnerability. But I also am aware, look, I mean, things are gonna get worse in Gaza before they get better from a humanitarian point of view. And it's, it's, I I don't want to put anything on the Muslim community or say like, hey, come and reach out to us while your people are being bombarded and and being forced to leave their homes. And, you know, I have a lot of anger toward Hamas as using people, using human beings as human shields. But I also am mindful that it is Israel uh, dropping those bombs and, and doing, you know, engaging in that military operation. So I'm not calling for a Kumbaya moment, but there are those of us who are holding fast to our beliefs in peace, uh, and in justice, um, while not excusing any violence on any side and not weaponizing that violence to make some political point, which I've seen happen a lot.
0: Yeah. I wonder if you could close with, um, offering some of the poetry that you, um, you, uh, shared on your Substack. um, called Both And. I I think people can find the substack Both And. It's Jay Michelson. Um, But you offered some poetry, uh, I think, uh, in your most recent um, edition. And I I found the turning towards poetry um, to be helpful. uh, And so perhaps you'd close by reading
1: a piece. I included one poem by a Palestinian-American poet and one by an Israeli poet. I think I might do an excerpt of each one. So this first one is a poem called Kindness uh, by uh, Naomi Shihab Nye. And, um, you know, it touches on themes of the pain that we feel, really feeling into that with profound compassion can be a source of how we generate kindness in ourselves. So it starts... Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you'll know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Skip down a little bit. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing, you must wake up with sorrow, you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. The second poem uh, is by the well-known Israeli poet, Yehuda Michai, uh, and it's titled entitled Wild Peace. Not the peace of a ceasefire, nor even the vision of the wolf and the lamb, but rather as in the heart when the excitement is over and you can talk only about a great weariness. A peace without the big noise of beating swords into plowshares, without words, without the thud of the heavy rubber stamp. Let it be light, floating, like lazy white foam, a little rest for the wounds. Who speaks of healing? Let it come like wildflowers, suddenly, because the field must have it, wild peace.
0: Rabbi Dr. Jay Michelson is a commentator, columnist, a meditation teacher, and the author of 10 books, including The Gate of Tears, Sadness, and The Spiritual Path. Jay, thank you so much for taking time to talk about this difficult subject with us.
1: Thank you, Paul, and thanks for having all of these multiple voices that are going to be in this episode. I really appreciate that.
0: We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, religious studies scholar Celine Ibrahim, and later the Reverend Fred Davey of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. You're listening to The State of Belief, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Dr. Celine Ibrahim is a scholar of religious studies with a focus on Islamic intellectual history and applied ethics. Her books include Women and Gender in the Quran and Islam and Monotheism. Having served in counselor and chaplain positions at Harvard and Tufts, Dr. Ibrahim is on the advisory council at the Miller Center for Interreligious Leadership at Hebrew College and affiliate faculty at the Boston Islamic Seminary. Celine, welcome to The State of Belief.
2: Thank you so much, Paul. It's an honor to be here with you as someone who's been a longtime mentor of mine.
0: I just want to start by we have history. We, You and I have history. Uh, uh, Dr. Ibrahim, exalted as she is, uh, I remember when you were at Princeton and um, you uh, were part of a program I had on um, religion and diplomacy. We um, we really have, over the years, stayed in touch. You went to Harvard after that, and then to Brandeis University, and got a PhD there. And um, you have been a, such an important leader and voice in the interfaith movement, but also within your own tradition. And uh, I'm just thankful for you uh, for being here today and um wanted to reach out and just check in and start with a very essential question of how are you feeling? Uh, how is your heart? Uh, how is your spirit?
2: Yeah, thank you, Paul. And thank you, too, for the mentorship. I think as a young person and knowing that I had interest in both religion and public affairs, that having spaces as a young person to be able to ask questions of experts and you know to to the space that you created then it was one of both intellect and heart and i am honored to see that you're continuing to create those spaces so i'm you know i'm i'm managing right i'm um uh, you know i'm keenly aware that i'm in a safe place and you know many are not and You know, my heart goes out to all of those who have lost relatives, who have lost families, who are just in precarious situations. So, you know, I'm, I'm managing, I'm coping, um, I'm checking in on people on, on friends and on relatives that that uh, are more directly involved.
0: And tell me a little bit about how you, um, in those check ins, especially within the Muslim community, what are what is the what is the feeling? Um, that perhaps you can share with our listeners about how Muslims um, in this country or around the world might be feeling uh, thinking although understanding that this is not a monolith um, there's much diversity there as anywhere but the people you're talking to what is what are some of the conversations that you can share
2: that that's an interesting thing about the Muslim community that I think you're picking up on is that, you know, for some people, this conflict has defined their entire existence, right? And we often hear prayers for people who are are suffering uh, in in Palestine, specifically in masjids, uh, the the mosques. Uh, At the same time, for many Muslims, this is not the central conflict that has defined their life. Their life has been defined by you know, a similar, similarly historically situated moment—the partition of India and Pakistan, and the ongoing tensions in the nationalist movements there—and you know others are coming from the African continent, where they're facing um, you know civil uprisings and ethnic violence. And so, for for some people, I think the um, the trauma that they carry is reactivated whether or not they're Palestinian or Arab uh, you know just by this this situation there's you know a number of Syrians who are wondering when they'll ever come back to their country or you know what will be left when they can uh, and so I think in in Muslim communities there's there's just a sense of deep grief and worry over the situation escalating as it seems to be. Uh, I think there's a lot of concern for the situation, for the people in Gaza, who, uh, you know, are just in in such a perilous uh, situation right now. Um, You know, there's anger, there's grief, there's disappointment once again, that we're in a place to say Islam does not condone terrorism and just, you know, that hit that track again and again and again. Uh, So Yeah, it's it's
0: mixed. Yeah. I don't feel like we can um, have this conversation without acknowledging the murder of a six-year-old boy who um, murdered only because of an identification as Muslim, as Palestinian, um, by his landlord in Chicago. And... um, you know, as much as everyone is speaking out against it. I mean, this has widely been condemned by the Jewish community, by by everyone. It doesn't change the fact that within some hearts, too many hearts in America, um, this reactivates a kind of terrifying Islamophobia that results in violence on Muslim lives. And I just want to acknowledge that, um, to, you know, let you know that I see that. And so many of us see that. And, but I, 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 there's no way to appreciate how that reads to Muslims and yourself as a mother, um, you know, how that reads as in this country in Chicago for that to happen.
2: I'm I'm just my heart is with that family and all of their relatives and for the Muslims in the Chicagoland area and you know all around the country. And one of the things that has brought American Muslims and American Jews together over the past decades is the Islamophobic violence, the anti-Semitic violence. And this is it it's a, a place in which I think American Muslim and Jewish communities can understand each other's. Pain and fear, and it the this type of one-off violence it works in everyone's psyche. And I'll tell you, Paul, I didn't go to the grocery store this weekend just because I just didn't want to put myself out there one more, you know, one more time in public. Why? I'll I'll eat granola, you know. And it, it's just that that type of the way in which an isolated act of violence then just has these repercussions. My. I was in, uh, at home over the weekend, and I heard you know, loud explosions. And you know, I I ran, I locked the doors, I turned off the lights, I hid. The irony is, it was my neighbor's bat mitzvah, so I was totally safe. Um, you know, it was fireworks for my neighbor's bat mitzvah. Um, but you know, just that the way in which the um, you know even one-off violence can just get in people's psyche, even if we do live in communities that are safe or, you know, it's, it erodes the trust, it, uh, you know, just creates this deep unease, which, which I think is the intention of the violence. So unfortunately, in that way, it works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Up next, I'll talk more with Celine Ibrahim. And later, vice chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom the Reverend Fred Davey. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation podcast at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Welcome back to The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, in conversation with religious studies scholar, Dr. Celine Ibrahim. What are some ways that you lean into the ethics of Islam and the knowledge that you have of Islam um, that is in conversation with other traditions? But, you know, because your work is always in context. I just, you know... um, for those of you who are listening, um, Dr. Ibrahim, her academic work is really unparalleled in looking at women in Islam and Islam and ethics, as well as interreligious um, uh, engagement. Uh, and so, what are what's what's a lesson um, that or lessons or wisdom that you are uh, taking from your tradition? Um, that maybe you can share with all of us so that we can grow in our wisdom. Um, uh, anything that comes to mind?
2: Yeah, thank you, Paul. I mean, Islam, like every single other tradition that I've studied, really respects the human dignity. It, it doesn't matter if you know, it doesn't matter what ethnicity a person is, it doesn't matter what religion they adhere to, there's a just a baseline for, for human dignity and human sanctity and the sanctity of life. Um, so I'm just, you know, that's that's the place where I return. You know, when I see somebody maimed, whether it's from an airstrike or a ground invasion or whatever it's it's from, I'm not asking, well, what religion was that person to decide whether or not that grieves my heart, uh, and I and I'm what I'm really sad to see is that so many people are treating conflict situations like this one as if it's some type of, you know, like sporting match where we're where we're cheering for a side. You know, this is this is a it, it's a collective human failing that we can have so many people murdered and uh, you know in the in in such precarious situations. It's you know, it's it's not it's not a moment to be polarized, and um, you know that's deeply painful for me. Just as you know, from my own own religious ethics, I I just um, you know, human life is human life. Human dignity is is human dignity. It it's it's not dependent on somebody's ethnicity or or creed.
0: I I think that's such an important insight, and um, and thank you for sharing that. Um we spoke earlier about your daughter who is uh, abroad and in a boarding school and you mentioned that she is a, a Muslim American um was in this when all of this happened and that she had a friend who was also American and um you know some of what they're trying to do can you share that story?
2: Yeah, so it's you know my daughter, her name means Rahm is Rahma, which means like merciful, compassion, and she grew up attending sort of uh, peace camps, Muslim Jewish exchanges. She grew up in in interfaith circles. Part of my family is Christian, so you know grew up going to you know decorating Christmas trees with with friends and and the like, uh, and you know I'm. As a parent i'm glad that she had those exposures, I think that they've made her her life rich and meaningful, and so now when she's in a situation, she does have a Jewish American friend who's studying with her who lost family um, in the attacks, and um, you know. Eh. <laughs> you know, at, at the same time she's she's Egyptian American she's Arab um and so you know she's been exposed uh you know to to the struggle of of the palestinians for you know as long as she's been alive basically and able to comprehend politics so i i I, you know it's just a moment and and i'm both you know i'm i'm deeply saddened for you know for her her dear friend but also you know like this is what i wanted for her to be able to be in a position where she can you know, hold grief and hold anguish and kind of, um, you know, still stand proud in her Muslim American identity, proud in her, you know, Egyptian identity, her Arab identity. Uh, So yeah, it's, um, and I wonder, you know, how can we teach more kids to be able to to hold the center to uh, in situations like this, because it, it takes training, it takes practice. Um, you know, it takes making mistakes, it takes, all, you know, safe environments in which to learn that are lower stakes. Uh, and I worry that are in the US, we have a, a, a system of just kind of trying to relegate difficult conversations uh, to, you know, out of our public spaces for for young people and out of, out of the school systems and I, I just regret that that might be causing more ignorance to to eventually resurface at, at the times when we need real wisdom and you know real human connection.
0: Mm, thank you for that. And I think you're absolutely right. It's about training. It's about um, being um, being experiences with people who are different, recognizing difference, being able to articulate difference and and disagreements, strong disagreements finding a ways to stay in community that are respectful um, and, um, and hopeful. And um, I just really appreciate all the ways that you have been doing that with your life and, um, and all of your students and all of the, the people you have um, influenced in that way. Um, at this point, um, is there anything that you would like non-Muslims to especially hear about ways they can show up, um, so why don't you say what you what you need right now?
2: You know, I appreciate all of my friends who have kind of checked in with me and you know how are you doing and I've been trying to do the same thing for you know people who I know are are deeply impacted by by this um, this situation and even as simple as it is that little act of reaching out uh, it just reaffirms our common humanity. Um, You know, at the same time, I think if aid does start flowing into Gaza, um, you know, that is one way that I think people can can get uh, directly involved. There's, you know, millions of people that have absolutely nothing to do with militant groups that you know, just need clean drinking water. And, you know, I think this is definitely the responsibility of of the the international community and, you know, not just this conflict and I keep I want to just to emphasize that as well that you know this anytime tensions flare up in between Israel and and Hamas, or, uh, you know, tensions in this related to this real Palestine issue. it's oftentimes that people from other conflict zones feel like, well, what about us? You know, we're, and so I think it's just a moment to renew our commitments to refugees and and those who are in the wake of political violence, you know, wherever they are.
0: Dr. Celine Ibrahim is a scholar of religious studies with a focus on Islamic intellectual history and applied ethics. Having served as counselor and chaplain positions at Harvard and Tufts, Dr. Ibrahim is on the advisory council at the Miller Center for Interreligious Leadership at Hebrew College and is affiliate faculty at the Boston Islamic Seminary. Celine, thank you so much for being part of the State of Belief this week.
2: Thank you, Paul. My my prayers uh, to you and your team and to all of those who are out there um, you know, unsure of what's coming next.
0: The Reverend Fred Davey is Strategic Advisor at Union Seminary. He's Senior Advisor for Racial Equity at Interfaith America. He was part of the Obama White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. And he is Vice Chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Fred, it is so good to have you back on The State of Belief.
3: Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me back.
0: So I want to start with the question that I think we should all start with is, how are you feeling
3: well obviously the events of the last 10 11 days or so um uh, are troubling to the soul uh and particularly mine um i uh, you know feel deeply for the people of israel palestine um, I think it goes without saying that the atrocities of Hamas must and should be condemned without qualification. um and while at the same time holding um space and room for the tragedy that's befalling all the innocent people of the of the region, um Jews and Palestinians um, alike. And uh, I'm particularly, um, you know, deeply saddened by what has happened uh, to the people of Israel. Um, but I'm also deeply saddened about the uh, situation of the uh, people uh, in, in Gaza. Uh, so um, my soul is troubled. Deeply troubled by the by the events of that region um, and 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 other parts of the world.
0: You've been witness to good moments and terrible moments in this country. Um, how do you, as a um, Christian pastor, um, understand the role of the Christian Church in the what we're seeing as the rising both anti-Semitism and terrible anti-Muslim violence that is happening in this country, what role can we play as Christians in this rising animosity in this country?
3: Right. I think, you know, sort of a, as a first sort of confession is good for the soul. So I think the Christian church in America, first of all, should be clear and honest about its own complicity in both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Own that, uh, but not stop there. And, 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 and perhaps find it a special obligation then to create paths of peace and cooperation, uh, particularly here in America, which is probably one of the most diverse religious democracies in the world. Um, and then pass that confession, celebrate what we do here, and yet um, also be challenged by what we have to do uh, going forward um, to, uh, to help to rectify uh, the places that we continue to fall short, to uplift examples of where religious diversity and cooperation are really working um, and happening. And then to challenge ourselves to look for new vistas, particularly in this troubled time, to be a beacon uh, to the world about what is what is really possible. Uh, so I think, you know, as a Christian, uh, as someone who's worked in local congregations, who's on the board of the interfaith center of new york who's worked with interfaith america who knows the beauty and the richness of religious diversity in this country and around the world um i think you know it we can in humility because of our own complicity, um uh in 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 things that we should not be proud of but in humility um call attention to the things that we can be proud of and be that beacon of hope and light that's so much really at the essence of at least the Christian message. And I think the message of other religions around the world and in this country as well.
0: You have been, I'm sure at tables over the last um, two weeks or so, uh, where there have been extremely difficult conversations and um, people having very different interpretations of what is happening, how to process what is happening, what the correct response should be. What are, what are almost spiritual practices or disciplines that you maybe can offer um, those of us who are trying to figure out how to be present in conversations where people are saying things that we disagree with? but still maintain community with them. Uh, I'm just curious what, how you react in those moments and, and what, what spiritual wisdom do you bring to those kind of conversations that perhaps our listeners could learn
3: from? Mm. I think what I have been inspired by are those people who encourage us to look at the humanity in all of this in the first instance, that no one on either side of this conflict no matter how hideous the things they may have done um, or just by virtue of who they are uh is not without a divine spark or with not without uh, fundamental humanity, or to say it more positively, everyone on both sides of this conflict is human. Now, that does not mean that we don't have to restrain and condemn really bad human behavior, but it's human behavior. Um, and that um, And that these are human beings that are being killed and maimed and tortured and who suffer uh and in my tradition human beings made in the image of God full stop um I think that when we are encouraged by various people around the country to focus on being compassionate we should hear that and heed that in this situation I think looking again for ways to cooperate across faith, ethnic, class, um, national boundaries and lines is also um, a good approach uh, to to this. So I try to incorporate those practices in how I respond to this enormous tragedy and other tragedies around the world and other sort of difficulties and conflicts. Um, imago dei image of god um, human beings made in the image of god compassion growing out of that and then looking for ways to cooperate um and create community those are the things that 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 tend to guide me here particularly you know as as i said when my soul is troubled mm. thank you
0: so much for that there is a senator who shall not be named who said that we are now in a religious war. And I found that deeply troubling because I don't know how you see, as you said, the image of God in everyone if you begin to use rhetoric such as religious war, which is, you know, by definition over the thousands of years is a kind of a zero-sum game. Um,
3: How do you respond to that kind of rhetoric? Um, By saying that it is completely unhelpful and it's unbecoming of um, a U.S. senator or any leader or perhaps any person anywhere. Israel has declared war on Hamas. And I would pray that if there is a war and there is one underway, that it would be strategic and limited um i heard someone say that sometimes war is a necessary evil it is sometimes necessary it is always evil and i tend to resonate with that so in this case israel feels as if it needs to um wipe out the leadership of hamas um that's if a war with a limited objective it's not a religious war and I don't think it helps for anyone to label this uh struggle as such um I would encourage as the president has and others that um Israel in its execution of its efforts to eliminate Hamas or the leadership of Hamas would be very very strategic about how it proceeds um already a lot of innocent people have lost their lives have been maimed and are suffering and i think it behooves everybody in this case if we can't stop that right now which i wish we could to work overtime to limit the amount of innocent suffering that happens in this and other situations um so it's not a religious war it shouldn't be labeled as such is irresponsible for leaders to call it that um and I think if it must be executed um then it should be done um, in a very, very limited and strategic way and that we should have a ceasefire to all of this as soon as possible and work on a constructive approach. I'm a believer in a two-state solution for the situation there so that uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis can have a state um, or have states that have safe and secure borders, but allow people to flourish and be the people God has created them to be.
0: Yeah, I think the part of the the distress of the religious war is not only how it's being, you know, perceived o- over there, but how this can seep into the American politic. And um, and we we have seen how that has already. Um, you know, that people are already, you know, taking sides and the violence and death has has, uh, come from this terrible moment we're in. Um, What are some glimmers of hope that you have seen over, you know, this in the recent, in recent days, um, conversations that you've also been a part of your, in your role at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom you are obviously in contact with so many different religious leaders across the world um as well as in, in this country are there any conversations that give you hope or and what kind of contours do those conversations have
3: right so um i am very appreciative of the leadership that um rabbi rick jacobs of uh the president of the union for reform Judaism is um is providing uh in this in this time um we probably don't agree on everything but I think there's not a more compassionate and caring person uh when it comes to these things uh in America if not the world I traveled with him and a group to Israel last um August August uh 2022 I guess it would have been we actually were there when there were missiles launched from Gaza and then Israel responded um and I think he's providing um uh good leadership in this time Rabbi uh Joshua Stanton uh Reverend Jackie Lewis and um a uh leader in in Islam uh were on and have been on the airways, particularly uh, on MSNBC this past Sunday morning, but in other venues as well, I think they they are showing what it means to cooperate across religious lines, to offer uh, examples of how to cooperate and be supportive of one another in this time while, you know, feeling deeply and passionately about the issues that this conflict conflict generates um the chair of the us commission on international religious freedom rabbi abraham cooper i as vice chair of that commission along with uh imam mohammed majid we put out a statement uh encouraging um the um the cessation of religious incitement uh, by governments around the world, particularly by governments and non-government entities uh, in uh, the Middle East. Um, so um, I think there are examples out there of um, leadership, of cooperation across uh, faith lines uh, that can serve as um, sort of a light unto our past, if you will, as we as we continue, you know, our journey in this time to find uh, a peaceful situation to uh, this very tragic uh, uh, circumstance and, uh, uh, in 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 um, Israel, Palestine, Gaza, um, and I think we should, we can continue to look to those leaders uh, to provide uh, direction and guidance for us as we work our way through. Uh, what is really a horrific situation for that region of the world and the world as a whole um, at this moment.
0: The Reverend Fred Davy is Vice Chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and Senior Advisor for Racial Equity at Interfaith America, as well as Senior Advisor at Union Seminary. Fred, thank you so much for taking time to be back with us today. I really appreciate it.
3: Well, thank you, Paul, and thank you for you and the um, Interfaith Alliance for the kind of light that you are shining on this situation, and your efforts to provide um, uh, moral clarity and um, and a beacon on how we might get ourselves beyond uh, this to a more peaceful and um, joyous place. So, thank you. I want
0: to take a moment to speak to you, uh, the listener, uh, who has heard these voices and I encourage you to consider what you've heard. Take any wisdom from each one of the three who offered a way for us to um, be in this moment and also to reach out to others in this moment and to take seriously each of our responsibilities to be agents of wisdom, of courage, and of peace. Interfaith Alliance is committed to this moment and to each of you. If you come to our website, interfaithalliance.org, you will find resources on combating Islamophobia, combating hate, as well as combating anti-Semitism. We encourage you to reach out. Let us know how we can help you to do work in your community, to forge interfaith alliances, and to build a better future for everyone. And that's all the time we have for The State of Belief this week. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and approved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform, or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping the State of Belief going. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com, that's stateofbelief.com. And if you're getting something out of this show, share it with your friends and family. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going when the show is over. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your networks. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kerstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. You'll hear highlights of the Interfaith Alliance Capitol Hill Banned Book Briefing from earlier this month, featuring Congressman Jamie Raskin, Tracy D. Hall, former Executive Director of the American Library Association, Anisha Singh of the Sikh Coalition, and Cameron Samuels from Students Engaged in Advancing Texas. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on the state of belief where religion and democracy meet.